Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Father, you said as many as received him, to them he has given the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. For we know your name is representative of all that you are. And so in worshiping your name, we recognize that we are worshiping you. And we bless you that we would even have the opportunity that we can cry out in our hearts and call you, as Paul said, Abba, Father. Thank you for the tender relationship we have made possible through the blood of your Son. Thank you that when you save us, you secure us, and that you commit yourself to forming Christ's image in us day by day. May we cooperate with the Spirit today as we open the Word. May our hearts be open. May we be hungry for its truth. May we be teachable so that you can speak afresh to us. Father, without you, I can do nothing, but I pray by your Spirit today you administer through me and that your Holy Spirit would bring lost into the kingdom. The seeds would be planted that would be harvested, and some seeds that have already been planted might even be harvested today. And may you take your church and edify us with truth. Thank you. You said sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Thank you for the sufficiency of Scripture that we don't need all the dramatics that are being offered in so many churches across America. But what we need is your holy truth. So, Spirit of God, take what you have inspired and illuminate to our hearts and minds today. We ask in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. We have seen in these last couple of years as we've been studying the Revelation that it is prophetic. And by prophetic, we are not referring to some psychic prediction or what one discovers at a seance. We are describing what one-third of the Bible is. One-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And prophecy is history written ahead of time. And so not to preach prophecy is not to preach one-third of God's Word. And the prophecies in the Bible are about real people, real places, real times, real events. You know, the Book of Mormon names all these places and all these people, and they can't find a single shred of evidence for a single name or person that they put in that book. Not one. Absolutely astounding. Yet the museums of the world are filled with the very events that we are studying in this book. When a Jew in Israel today learns history, his own history, where does he go? He studies the Holy Scripture. And what's so eye-opening is that God speaks not just of what he has already fulfilled, but even in the future of things that he's going to accomplish. That's what makes the Bible so unique. There's not a single prophecy in the Book of Mormon or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita's or the Vedas or the writings of Confucius or Buddha, not a single prophecy. Only the Bible has fulfilled prophecy. And God basically says, I'm going to tell you what is going to happen before it happens, and then I'll watch over history to make sure that it does happen, and you will know that I am God. Listen to these words that Isaiah the prophet penned. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. 
before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. God is speaking, and he says, look, some of the things I've already said have been fulfilled, and that's why you can rely on the fact that the things that I'm going to say will be fulfilled. Much of the prophecy, when we speak of one-third of the Bible being prophetic, has already been fulfilled, and it's on that basis we have the assurance the rest will be fulfilled. Isaiah 46, God again says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish. Look up here, my good pleasure. Listen to what God said in Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, he's speaking to the people of Israel. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. By the way, that verse, verse 11, is a great verse to confront a JW with. Recently, I was in a city, and every three hours, they would change posts, and these JWs were so very faithful. They were doing what God's people ought to be doing. But on their website, if you go to their homepage, they say, and I quote, we follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and honor Him as our Savior. And yet God here, He's speaking, there is no Savior besides me. Repeatedly in Scripture, God calls Himself the Savior. And so if you use a verse like this, Isaiah 43 and verse 11, you can catch them in their own double talk. See, the way the devil comes is he comes as an angel of light. He disguises himself. And so if they say Jesus is the Savior and God says, I alone am the Savior, then you have to decide what you will believe. It's a clear inference that Jesus is God, or you have to reject that. So they can't use their terminology consistently. Jesus said, to see me is to see the Father. He said, I and the Father are one, which is totally fitting with Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, for a child will be born to us. That's the child in Bethlehem. A son will be given to us. That's the eternal son who came down and took on our humanity. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Even the rabbis have to admit that this is a messianic verse. Because only on the shoulders of the Messiah will the governments of this world rest. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. We spend a lot of money going to a lot of counselors. When we have a wonderful counselor, and if we'd put our head in this book, some of us wouldn't have so much trouble. He's the mighty God. And by the way, there is no distinction in Scripture between mighty God and almighty God. The two are used interchangeably. And so the JW's argument is useless. He is called the eternal father and that he births children through faith in himself. He is the prince of peace. Now, we've learned from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, the theme of Revelation is that he is coming again on the clouds. And when he comes, he will fulfill all of the prophecies that we've been studying these past few years. Again, prophecy is history pre-written. And he is coming probably sooner than most of us realize. And one of the reasons the revelation was given was to prepare us for that time, that we might be ready, that we might watch, that we might work, that we might love Jesus until he comes again. 
And for some, it will be a day of great blessing. For others, it will be a day of eternal loss. But Revelation also closes with a reminder of accountability, not just to the saved person, but to the lost person. The Scripture says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. When God sends people to hell, I have no doubt there'll be a tear in his eye. It will be a just expression of his wrath, but he truly meant it when he said it that he wishes none to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so it's not surprising that here in the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of Scripture ever penned in the final words, what we are calling the epilogue to the revelation, God gives an invitation. Now, this morning, we're going to look at just two verses, 16 and 17. That will be the focus of our study. But to give us a running start into the context, I want to begin reading in verse 10. So follow along, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10. And he said to me, this angel of God said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong and let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Again, you can see the title of the message there in your note-taking outline is God's last call to be saved. Let me bring us into the context. Many new people here every week, but the review is helpful to us so that we think biblically, we think contextually. Verse 10, John is told by God's angel, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Don't seal it up. I want it written out, and so that's consistent with the opening chapter when he says, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So at the opening of the church age that began on Pentecost, that's when the church was born, the Bible teaches, these events could happen at any moment. They could have happened 10 years after Pentecost if God so chose. Nothing prophetically has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and gather His church. Much for the second coming, nothing for the rapture. And anything that is not fulfilled by the time of the rapture will be fulfilled in that final seven-year period. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And the words are two words in Greek, tus lugus. And it's referring specifically to the words of the book of Revelation. The actual words of the Revelation, a book that is often not preached, its truths are ignored, are to be preached. Why? Because there's a coming day of judgment and a coming day of blessing. The Bible is not a closed book. It is open to those who have a heart for the things of God. It is closed to those who resist its truth, to those who have, in essence, become blinded by the evil one. 
And so to fail to preach the truth of the revelation is, number one, is to rob the believer of blessing. There's a blessing associated with this book in the opening few verses. Blessed are those who read and hear and heed the words of the prophecy of this book. It's great blessing, but there's also great warning to the unbeliever in what will happen. Don't seal up the words, the time is near. These events are right around the corner, so this message is not to be hidden. God says it is to be spread. Listen, these words are to be made known. What does that imply? That it's not mysterical, not mystical, it's not secretive, it's not unknowing. Now, you have to dig for it, and we'll see an example of that this morning. But God wants you to dig. Now, I think one of the reasons God wove the whole Old Testament through the book of Revelation is so that you might dig. It's not for the lazy Christian. It's for the Christian who is intent on learning what God says. But a failure to preach the book of Revelation is a failure to bless God's people. It's a failure to teach the whole counsel of Scripture and it's a failure to warn the lost. Blessed is he who reads and hears and heeds the prophecy. Write it in a book, send it to the seven churches. Verse 11, he now describes two categories of people that come from preaching Tuslugus, the words. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. The one who is righteous still practice righteousness. The one who is holy still keep himself holy. John is underscoring, one, the time is near, the time is at hand, and therefore we need to be ready. He's helping us to see between verses 10 and 11 that there's a cause-effect relationship between the preaching of the revelation and what happens in people's lives. And he's reminding us that the time is short, so to speak. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. He's describing that when Jesus comes, he'll come so quickly, so suddenly, without notice, for the lost man, that he'll be locked in that lostness. The one who is filthy will still be filthy. He won't have a chance to repent. You say, does God want to send people to hell? Of course not. That goes against the whole tenor of the revelation. He's just linking this statement to what he has said, behold, I am coming quickly and the time is near. And we've seen that this time that God speaks of is not just the time of time, but the kind of time. In Greek, you have both. And that once the events begin to unfold, they will happen so quick, people will not be able to change. And so Revelation 22, 11, as much as anything, it's a, it's a warning to make a decision because your decision will determine your character and your character will ultimately determine your eternal destiny. There's no cure once it unfolds. It is forever. The man who is in his filth will be forever in his filth and the man who is in his righteousness will be forever in his righteousness. And so God is saying, look, don't ignore these warnings because one of these days it will be too late. And you'll remember, oh, my dad, my mom, my grandmother, my friend always begged me to make a decision for Christ, but it will be too late. The Bible says because they loved wickedness, 2 Thessalonians 2, they will believe a lie. One of the saddest verses, I think, in Scripture is when God says to the prophet 
Hosea, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone, Hosea. He's made a decision. Jesus, on one occasion, said in Matthew 15, 14, let them alone, they are blind guides to the blind. And so Jesus is speaking here in verse 12, and notice, he says, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. Again, the kind of time, not the time of time. So that statement was made 2,000 years ago. Yes, it is, but it's imminent. It could happen today. And once it starts, it will move so quick. And he says, my reward is with me to do what? To render to every man according to his works. Now, we've seen this statement, this theme carried all the way through the Scripture that a day will come when God will render to you according to your works. We studied this in Revelation chapter 20 in verses 12 and 13. All the lost of all time stand before what's called the great white throne judgment. And John said, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books. How? According to their deeds. He'll say it again in verse 13, that they will be judged according to their deeds. Jesus in Matthew 16 said, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father, and he will repay every man, how? According to his deeds. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 6 that God will render to every man, how? According to his deeds, quoting the Old Testament. Why does God render his reward for good or for evil according to deeds? Well, for the lost man, for two reasons. Because his deeds will show that he has never been born again. I hope you realize you're not saved by works. The Bible is clear you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But the grace that saves is never alone. Your life will change, and if you've had a birth from above, your life should change. And if your life hasn't changed and you're calling yourself a Christian, you are self-deceived. Paul speaks of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. So number one, every mouth will be shut because their deeds will show that they're lost. But number two, God judges the lost man according to his deeds because while hell is miserable for everyone... It's not the same degree of misery for everyone. God is a perfectly just God, and he meets out punishment in hell according to deeds. But there's a time of blessing as well for the believer. His reward is far different. And so Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, for we, he's speaking of himself and all believers, we must all appear before the Bema, the reward seat of Christ. For what reason? That one, each one may be recompensed. It's an each one kind of judgment. You don't stand there as a family. We don't stand there as a church. We stand each one, eyeball to eyeball, face to face with Jesus. Each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And if you know this passage of Scripture, the bad works are the useless works done in the energy of the flesh, things done out of fellowship with God. And the good works are the works that are done by the power of the Holy Spirit as you depend upon him. And so Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
He doesn't say work for your salvation, but work out. Do you understand that when you are born again, you are secure, the Spirit comes to live inside of you, and as you yield to the Spirit following the dictates of the written, holy, inspired, inerrant, eternal Word of God, God will reward you for it in eternity. Now look at verse 13 as we move closer to our verses. I am the Alpha, Jesus said, and the Omega, the first and the last the beginning and the end. In plain English, I am the A to the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. In other words, if human existence and human knowledge and human history are an alphabet, then God is both the first letter and the last letter. And we saw that God the Father takes this title to Himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And we also saw that God the Son takes this title to Himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Why? Because they're equally God. To see Him is to see the Father. Look at verse 14. Lest anyone think that they're going to work their way to heaven and get there some other way than the finished work of Christ. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter by the gates into the city. Only those who have washed their robes, how? By faith and the blood of the Lamb. We already saw in Revelation 7 and verse 14 that believers have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Jesus. Had there been another way, God would have not given His Son, but there is no other way. And so for those who do not identify with robes of righteousness that comes through the blood of the Lamb, verse 15 says, outside are the dogs. We saw that as a word that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe homosexual perversion, male prostitutes in the book of Deuteronomy, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and anyone, everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, based on what we studied in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, to be outside is to be confined to the lake of fire. And of course, by the time chapter 22 is penned, He's already described very carefully in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, that judgment where men are confined to the lake of fire. It will be terrible to be lost and to be eternally in the lake of fire. It's so sad. But the lost man's agony is intensified in hell by the knowledge of what he missed. He will have a knowledge like the rich man who died and went to hell. He is fully aware of what Lazarus, who's in Abraham's bosom, had been experiencing. It would be a terrible thing to be lost in an eternal punishment in the lake of fire and then to realize what you might have had. Now, that brings us to our verses this morning. There on your outline, God's last call to be saved. There are three truths about this call that I want us to ponder this morning. Number one, let's think about the promise of salvation. He's given a call to salvation, and the first aspect of this call to salvation concerns a promise. Look now, if you will, at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Notice how Jesus describes himself as the root and the descendant of David and as the bright morning star. Now, that's important 
because the Messiah or the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew title that most of us know, the Christ, is called here the root and descendant of David. Now, that's a challenge. Like, what does that refer to? So hold your finger here, and we're going to do a little survey, because John assumes the first century reader understood this, and they did. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 for just a moment. We're going to be in Genesis for for just a few minutes, so turn there. It will be worth your while to go there. Genesis chapter 12. John assumes his reader knows something about this truth called the root and the descendant of David. God had already revealed right after Adam sinned that man could not save himself, that fig leaf religion, where man through his own effort tries to cover his shame, is not sufficient, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God establishes the principle of the need for blood, and he gives a a promise in what we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3 of a Savior. And he begins to unfold that salvation in the book of Genesis. And here in Genesis chapter 12, we discover God making a covenant, a deal, a promise, an agreement with Abraham. And he enters into this agreement, and he gives Abraham some rock-solid promises. Look at verse 2, Genesis 12. God says, and I will make you, you Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a wonderful promise. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. Now remember, Abraham is 75 years old when God makes this promise, and he's childless. And yet God promises in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. And indeed, the Hebrew people to this day are a great nation. We hear about them almost every single day in the news and not by accident. And he says in verse 3, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And indeed, the Jewish people have been blessed, and they are going to be blessed in the coming days in a very, very special way when they acknowledge that Yeshua is the Messiah. But God also tells Abraham that he'll be a blessing to others. He says here at the end of verse 3, and in you, and you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's my family, that's your family, that's every family on the face of the earth can be blessed through the Jewish people. Now, I want you to know that Abraham is a blessing to me today. You say, why is he a blessing to you? Well, number one, his people, the Jewish people, gave us this book that we are reading. Every single book of the Bible was written by a Jew. God gave us this book through his people. Paul in Romans 3, when he's dealing with the unbelief of the Jewish people in chapter 2, and he says, then what advantage has the Jew? And he'll, he'll answer his own question. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They gave us the Bible. God entrusted his holy, infallible word to the Jewish people. But I also am blessed in that my Messiah came from the Jewish people. I was talking to a few young men recently, and they were speaking rather disparagingly of the Jewish people. And I said, did you know Jesus was a Jew? Hmm. 
Most anti-Semites are so ignorant, they don't even know that the Savior of the world is a Jew in his humanity. Jesus came from the Jews. That's why he told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. What a blessing Abraham has been and continues to be. And here we are, 4,000 years later, still talking about this fellow. So we know the Messiah is going to come from one of Abraham's descendants. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 21. Go forward a few pages to Genesis chapter 21 for a moment. If you remember, by this time, Abraham had Ishmael by Hagar. But then later, he had the miracle baby, Isaac, and God reaffirms his covenant, not with Ishmael, but with the son of promise known as Isaac. Here in Genesis 21, if you remember, um, Hagar is living under the same roof with uh, Sarah, and they got this boy, Ishmael, and there's all this conflict in the home, and Sarah has kind of reached the limit, and she comes to Abraham and she says, they got to go. Hagar and Ishmael need to go. And so Abraham is facing one of the most difficult decisions of his life. Should he make Sarah face reality and learn to live with Hagar and Ishmael? Or should he consent to her request? Well, he doesn't have to figure it out because God answers it for him. Look at chapter 21 here in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. God knew better than Abraham because God knew it was impossible for both women and both children to live under the same roof and for his purposes ultimately to be accomplished. So God says, listen to the voice of Sarah. Now, the first time he listened to the voice of Sarah, he went into Hagar and they had Ishmael. And because of that decision, there is the Arab-Israeli conflict to this day. It has been a constant conflict since Hagar, who gave him Ishmael, who in turn, Ishmael had 12 children that gave us the Arab nations of the world. Constant conflict. But God this time wants him to listen because Sarah is absolutely right. And I know when many of us read something like this, it's somewhat startling. I mean, from Hagar and Ishmael's perspective, it seems rather unfair because it seems like Hagar didn't really have a choice and Ishmael didn't ask to be born, and it's somewhat understandable why he is jealous and as a teenager. But think your way through this. While Sarah's attitude was understandable, it certainly was not commendable. And so why does God take Sarah's side? Look at verse 10. First, Sarah was right when she said in verse 10, drive out this maid and her son. For what reason? For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Sarah knew that Isaac and Ishmael couldn't both be heirs. And the intense conflict had been growing. And according to this chapter 21.9, it was a habit. It was ongoing by the tense that's used. And God had dictated that it's going to be through Isaac that the son of promise will come. Now, that doesn't mean that Ishmael died and went to hell. 
And some people have taught that from Romans 9, but the theme of Romans 9 is not God choosing one person to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. He's dealing with nations and the people that will come from each of these sons. So whatever Sarah tells you, for through, listen to her, because through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, that does not mean, again, that God loves one and hates the other. You think God gave Abraham this son, whom the Bible says he loved Ishmael. This man who is the father of the faithful, that he trained him up to help fuel the flames of hell, I don't think that for a moment. And people who've come to that conclusion have come to a sloppy interpretation of the Holy Scripture. Verse 13, and of the son of the maid, God promises, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. God promises, if you read the whole chapter, to bless Ishmael. And again, he ends up having 12 sons, and he makes him a mighty nation as well. But God, for his sovereign purposes, to bring the Messiah, had to choose one of these boys. And in the providence of God, he chose the miracle baby, who, of course, becomes a type of Christ. Abraham has a baby who is called his only begotten son. And the phrase monogene, only begotten, is only used of two people in Scripture, Isaac and Jesus. Now, they're only begotten for different reasons, but they're both miracle babies. Abraham's body is as good as dead as is Sarah's, but God gives them a miracle baby. Now, turn to chapter 26, a few more pages. Chapter 26, there's a reason in this madness, so stay with me. Chapter 26. Abraham, by this time, is dead. Chapter 25 says he was 175 years old when he died. And notice what God promises Isaac in Genesis 26 in verse 3. God says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Now, certainly a major reason that God had Moses write this was to remind the people in his generation of just how faithful and unchanging he is. God made a covenant promise to Abraham, and he repeats it to Isaac concerning a piece of property that today we call Israel. Remember, Moses comes 400 years after Abraham is born. And centuries later, he is reminding the people who've been delivered out of Egypt that God is faithful. Now look at chapter 26 in verse 4. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. Sound familiar? And will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Not only does God give a promise to the land, but again, he repeats the promise that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So how is that going to happen? How will all the peoples of the world be blessed through the Jews? Because as Jesus again told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. And just as God made his promise to Abraham in a place called Shechem, Remember, Abraham left Ur of Chaldee, not even knowing where he was going, but he believed that God is faithful, that God would show him. He said, go to the place I'll show you. His path is recorded. He walks over 1,100 miles, 
And then God appears to him, and God hadn't even given the man direction, and he comes to this place called Shechem. Last year, I stood over a hillside and looked at Shechem. Shechem is an important place because that was the place that Abraham first came when he came into the Holy Land, as we call it today, and as God calls it. It's the place, too, where Joseph is buried. When they said, when Joseph said, bring my bones into the promised land and bury me, there is his grave. And about 50 yards from his grave is Jacob's well, a well that Jesus met a woman of Samaria. And so he comes all the way to Shechem, and God gives a, a promise, and God is repeating the promise here. So don't forget that what happens in Genesis 25 is given by direct revelation. Go back to chapter 25 for a moment, verse 23. If you remember... Uh, Isaac and Rebekah have some babies. We call them twins. And God gives a divine sonogram. Look at 25, 23. The Lord said to her, to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, if she had gone to an obstetrician of that day, had they had one, or maybe a midwife, the midwife would have just said, you know, you've got twins, and they're just very active, and that's about all the midwife could say. But God gives a divine sonogram here. He reveals prophetically sound doctrine and theology. Two nations are in your womb. One, as you know, was named Jacob. The other, as you know, was named Esau. And two peoples will be separated from your body. God was prophesying something concerning these two sons, and that Jacob is going to be the progenitor of the Jews. And some years later, if you remember, God renamed Yaakov Yitzrael, Israel. He calls him Israel. He gives him a covenant name. And he has 12 sons that form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Esau, in turn, also becomes a great nation. Furthermore, we're told, and one people shall be stronger than the other. And indeed, the Jews were stronger than the Edomites. Those are the descendants of Esau in Scripture. And the older shall serve the younger. That is, Esau and his descendants would serve Jacob and his descendants. And of course, we've already seen in the Revelation, when the Jews flee into the wilderness, they'll still be serving the Jews and that they'll provide protection for them as they go into the wilderness where the Edomites are. And Esau and his descendants are going to serve Jacob as in his descendants. Now, beginning in chapter 28, go over another page or so, Genesis chapter 28. Again, we're going somewhere with this. God meets Jacob, who's given the promise that came from Isaac, that came from Abraham. He meets him in a place called Bethel. To capture the context, uh, let's pick it up in verse 12. And he, Jacob, had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. So he has this dream, but it's no ordinary dream. It's a direct revelation from God. Now, remember, before the canon of Scripture was completed, God often spoke through direct revelation. At this point, the first word of Scripture had not yet been penned by Moses. 
So God spoke in many portions in many ways. And God spoke sometimes in dreams, not just to believers, but to unbelievers. Remember earlier in Genesis 20, Abimelech has a dream about Abraham's wife, Sarah. He pinned her off, not as his wife, but as his sister. And, uh, and then in Genesis 41, if you remember, Pharaoh has a dream that Joseph has to interpret. Nebuchadnezzar, also a pagan Babylonian, he's later converted, but uh, as a pagan, he has a dream. And if you remember, Daniel had to interpret it for him. But God also gave dreams to believers, even in the New Testament time frame. Joseph received a dream telling him that Mary's conception was supernatural conception. And then some time later, he was warned by God, the Scripture says, in a dream. Now, if today someone has a vision or a dream, and I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's certainly not normative. So these people go around saying they had a dream. They probably had indigestion or they were just trying to be a big shot and they've got a huge spiritual ego because we have a completed canon of Scripture. It's not impossible, but it's not typically probable. And certainly if someone has a vision or a dream today, and by the way, every single cult in the world today is typically built on some vision or some dream, some extra revelation And if the vision or dream that one has doesn't coincide with Scripture, it is to be rejected. We'll talk more about that as we come to the end of Revelation. Now, if you go to Israel today, Bethel is a great place to visit. I've only been there once, but it's a class A geographical spot. Sometimes you you go to a place and, well, happened somewhere around here, or we're not even sure if it happened here, but like that happened in Bethel. And of course, Jeroboam later on When he wants to institute a false system of worship, he sets up two centers of paganism, one in Bethel, the place where Jacob had his dream. You might as well pick a religious spot. And then for convenience, people who live further north, one in Dan, Dan and Bethel. It's an amazing place. I've only been there once. But I want you to see what happened when he has this dream, because what he happened to him there to Jacob, in New Testament terminology, we would say he was born again. Three important features in Jacob's dream. First, he sees a ladder. And the Bible says its foot is from the earth with its top extending to heaven. Second, the Bible says here he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And third, at the top of the ladder, he sees God himself. Now, I'm not going into a lot of detail on the dream, but if you're interested in studying it, download the STS app. Maybe that sermon will be uh, useful to you. It's an hour-long sermon. But we do know, number one, that the ladder is not the Roman Catholic Church, as they say. If you were here on Wednesday night, we learned that the Roman Catholic Church says that salvation is uniquely through them. And they argue that the church is the ladder and that the only way for you to get to heaven is through the Roman church. Look, salvation is not in the Catholic church or the Baptist church, or the Presbyterian church or the Methodist church or any other church. It's in the Lord Jesus, not in some institution. He is the way to heaven. And we also know that this is not a picture of the pilgrim's pathway to heaven, that we are to climb and walk. And so there's a song a lot of you sung as children, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. It has absolutely nothing to do with this section of Scripture. How do I know? Put out in the margin next to verse 17, John 1, 47 to 51. John 1, 47 to 51. 
If you think it might be helpful, listen to that message I have in the Gospel of John. The latter here is not some mystery. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And the Lord Jesus identifies himself as the latter to Nathanael. He is the one who bridges heaven and earth. And it's through him that we experience all of the blessings that God gives us. But I want to focus here on the covenant that's make it mentioned here by God in verse 14. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, we've already studied this promise, first to Abraham, then to Jacob, and now to Isaac. And it's a threefold promise concerning a land, a nation, and a blessing. And we've seen that repeated in each situation. So God made a promise to Abraham, then he makes a promise to Isaac, then he makes it to Jacob, and through Jacob's lineage, the Messiah is going to come. Oh, good, but which dimension of his lineage? Because he has 12 sons. So which of the 12 sons will the Messiah come through? Well, fast forward to Genesis 49. By the way, when, when God meets Moses in Exodus 3, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of this marvelous covenant that God made. Genesis 49, if you remember, God has already renamed Jacob Yitzrael. He has 12 sons, but to which son will the promise of the Messiah be passed? Well, Jacob, he's sick, he's on his deathbed, and one by one, we are told in verse 1, and Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now, as you read this chapter, it contains blessings given to each son along with prophecies that deal with the last days. Three times in verse 28 of this chapter, we're told that Jacob's words were a blessing to, his, a blessing to his sons. But they're more than a blessing. There's a prophecy. Remember, prophecy is history pre-written. And he goes all the way to the last days, to the final days in human history. This is the first of 14 times the expression, the last days is used in the Old Testament. And in each occasion, it's connected with the Messiah and his coming to the earth. Now we're told in verse 2, gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Jacob is going to give a prophetic blessing to each of his sons. And what is remarkable is that though the Bible says his eyesight is dim, his body is worn out, his mind is crystal clear. He recalls, of course, each son's name. He recalls their history, what they had been like, and what plans God has for them. Listen to Yitzrael. He uses his covenant name that God had given him after he had become no longer self-centered, but God-centered where he was broken. Listen to Israel, your father. He is saying, what I'm about to tell you is not from my clever, ambitious nature, but it's from the new man that God has made me. And our interest, again, is trying to learn which of the sons does God carry the covenant blessing on. Well, look in verse 8. Judah, you are whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah had prevailed. He had some problems in the beginning. He became a godly man. And so leadership is given over his brothers, his enemies, and over his father's children. And prophetically, there's a whole sermon in this, and I have one on it if you're interested. The Messiah will come through the tribe of Judah, and there'll be three groups of people that will acknowledge the lordship of the Messiah. The Jews, his brothers according to the flesh, the Gentiles who have constant hostility towards him, and we will see even at the end of the time all of the nations, meaning all the goyim, all of the uh, Gentile nations of the world will go against Jesus. And the church, his father's children. Judah is a lion's whelp, verse 9. You know what a whelp is? It's the young of a, a dog or a wolf or a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, it's technically feminine in Hebrew, who shall rouse him? Now, the ESV actually does a great job. Usually, they, ESV is a great translation. But they really pick up the fine nuance here. Let me read the ESV. Rarely do they supersede the NASB, but they do here. The ESV captures the fine nuance of the Hebrew here. It says, Judah is a lion's cub. That's what a whelp is. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, it's feminine, who dares rouse him. So Jacob compares Judah, notice, to a lion's cub, a lion, and a lioness. No one is going to challenge a lion's cub with all of its new strength or a lion who is king, much less a lioness who's going to protect her young. And Judah is telling Jacob that his people would be the royal lion. As the lion is king among the beasts, no one is going to tamper with Judah. And so the Spirit of God is prophetically beginning to unfold further. And again, this is a sermon in itself, and I have it, and I walk through all the fine points, but I'm just trying to give us the broad strokes this morning. Praise and preeminence should have been given to Reuben, but Reuben didn't get it. Why? Because he gave it up for a half hour of sex. So God gives it to Judah. The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet. Until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is one of the titles for, for the Messiah. Every Jew recognizes that. Until Shiloh comes. That's why it's capitalized, too, in your Bible. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh is the Hebrew word for rest. From the same word comes the word shalom, translated peace. One is coming, the prince of peace, who, of course, the New Testament reveals is going to disarm another lion. A lion who prowls about seeking someone to devour. And of course, Paul says he will make peace through the blood of his cross and he will disarm that lion. And during Shiloh's kingdom, when Messiah reigns on the earth, he will bring peace. And so we've already studied from Isaiah and from Revelation. When Messiah comes, he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Now, Judah had four children. So it goes to Abraham. There's a reason to this madness. Stay with me. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. He's got four kids. Which of the four? Well, as you follow the track, through one of these four, God affirms that one known as Jesse would bring the Messiah. 
You can go home and read 1 Samuel 16 if you want. One of Judah's sons has a relative down the line known as Jesse. And Jesse lives in a little town called Bethlehem. And he, of course, has eight sons. Well, which of the eight sons are going to be the one through whom the Messiah will come? Well, let me just read it to you. 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Daniel is told to go speak to King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth, and I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. That's never happened. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. That's never happened. Even from the day that I commanded you, judges to be over you, my people Israel, I will give you, he's speaking prophetically, rest from your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you when your days are complete, when you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, David, what am I going to do? I'm going to raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So to Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham, an explicit pledge is made that the promised ruler, the Messiah, Shiloh, will come from him. And Samuel goes to Jesse's home. God does not see as man sees. And so out of the eight kids, he picks the least likely, David. And David then is promised in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah, one, is going to sit from his loins who will sit on the throne forever. Now, that background is assumed back here in Revelation. So go back to Revelation 22 and verse 6. You see, the Revelation is a challenging book. I told you when we started that of the 404 verses in the Revelation, some 300 of them have direct uh, references to the Old Testament. But never once does he say, well, Moses said or Isaiah the prophet said, it's like a mosaic. It's all woven together beautifully, and you have to dig it out. And I think God had a reason for doing that. Because when you do dig it out, you just like never forget it. It grips you, and God wants it to grip you because he wants to change us from it. And so here he is. He is speaking uh, of, of the Messiah here uh, in, in the book of, of Revelation and what he is going to do through the Messiah. Look again of what God says here in uh, verse 16 of Revelation 2. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David and the morning star. Now, that's an interesting statement. This is, by the way, the thing that got Jesus in trouble with the leaders of his day. He argued for his preexistence. He said before Abraham was... I am, that ever before Abraham came into view, I existed long before Abraham. He was claiming to be the eternal God. Why are you stoning me for these good works I do? No, but because you who are just a man, they said, are making yourself out to be God. And so when he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, every reader in the first century knew the implications of that. 
They knew what the history behind that was. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons, Judah, David, Messiah. They understood the inference behind it. He is the root of David, and notice he's also the descendant of David. How can you be both the root of David and the descendant of David? You can only be the root of David if you existed before David. And you can be only the descendant of David if you as God became a man. And so Jesus, who is eternal, for there was never a time when he was not, left the splendor of heaven and he becomes a man through the lineage of David. I am the root and the descendant of David. That is only possible if he is both fully God and fully man. The eternal God predates David. And yet just as the prophets had written, he would come through the line of David. Notice also he identifies himself here in verse 16 as the bright morning star, or you could more loosely interpret it, though the word and is not in the original, the bright and morning star. It reads a little smoother. You know what a star is. Today we refer to someone typically who is famous as a star. We speak of a star athlete or a rock star or a movie star. And the whole idea of a star being famous has its roots in Scripture, as many expressions that we have today, all the way back in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, when he speaks of faithful believers who share the gospel, they'll shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Not to mention the coming of the Messiah is associated with a star. Even the angels are called stars, according to Job. When the creation was made, the morning stars, meaning the angels, sang. Now, most of you know that there was one particular angel who's also called the star of the morning. Now, the King James doesn't interpret the Hebrew name. It just renders it Lucifer. But the word Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and verse 12 means the star of the morning. And of course, we studied the fall of Satan from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 when we're way back in Revelation 12. And we learned something in the New Testament that's not revealed in the Old Testament, that when Satan rebelled, he took one-third of all the angels with him who today are demons. Now, the only time the title Morning Star appears in the Bible in reference to Jesus is right here in Revelation. What's the point? This is the end of time. The battle is over, very simple. Christ is won, Satan is lost. That's the promise of salvation. He is coming. And so, you know, you go to Israel today, and I don't usually take people there because I think it's a questionable spot, but what happens there is very affirming, and that there's a spot, and they say, this is the tomb of King David. But the fact that they revere King David's tomb is because they recognize that through David's lineage is coming the Messiah himself. That's the promise. Beyond the promise, there's the plea of salvation. I'm actually almost done. Stay with me. The plea of salvation. Let's read the first part of verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Now, we would do well to yield to this one who comes from David's loins, to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
and you have a question, some of you listening to me, that you need to answer. Am I going to embrace the Lord Jesus as my king or not? The spirit and the bride says, come. Now, I think this is fitting. Here we are at the end of Scripture. The final words that God ever wrote and recorded for man come here at the end of the Bible, and he wrote every single word, every single thought was inspired through the Holy Spirit. We have one book, 40-some authors, most of whom never met each other. They write over the course of 1,500 years. They live on three different continents. They write in three different languages. And when it's all brought together, there's one cohesive thread from Genesis to Revelation. Why? Because behind each human author, there is one divine author, God the Holy Spirit. And now God the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, we've seen him speak one other time. Hold your finger here for just a moment and turn back a few pages. Revelation 14. Revelation 14, and let's look at uh, verse 13. And what I find interesting, and here's the point I want to make, that in both instances, when the Spirit of God speaks, he says one word. It's not by accident. Because he came, the Scripture says, Jesus said, not to exalt himself, but to exalt Christ. Look at 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes. There's his word. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now, remember, the Holy Spirit is addressing believers in this passage, and so appropriately, because it's the Spirit, of course, who convicted you before you were saved. He convicts you of your sin and shows you your need. He is the one, the moment you believe, who regenerates you. He makes you a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who allows you to know God, not just in a historical way, but in a real way, that they may know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. He is the one, once you're saved, who teaches you. Yes, I can preach truth, but only the Spirit, our anointing, can impart that truth to you. He illumines the truth to you. He's the one who's your helper, who wants to strengthen you for the challenges of life. He is the one who gave you a spiritual gift so you can serve the body of Christ. He is the one who comforts you in all of your heartache. He is the one who seals you for the day of redemption. And when you finally die, he says, yes. Because his job and his work over you is completed. And of course, in verse 13, there's a strong contrast between the saints here who are described as having rest and the wicked whom the Scripture says have no rest day or night in verse 11. They rest from their labors in what sense? When we get to heaven, is it some big rest home where we just sit around in a rocking chair? Not at all. He uses a specific word for rest that refers to the absence of strain and turmoil and heartache. It's a specific word that he uses. Listen, we will serve the Lord day and night in heaven, the Bible says. We will work. Our God is a working God. Work is not a result of the fall. What came as a result of the fall is how work now has to be carried out. And so in heaven, there's no more heartache, no more struggles, no more disappointments. No longer will there be any death, any mourning, any pain or crying. Why? Because all those things have passed away. 
so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. Remember, he's speaking in the context of tribulation saints, and their deeds follow them. Remember what these saints are like. Many are starved to death. Why are they starved to death? Because they refuse to identify with the Antichrist, and they can't buy or sell anything. Most of them have their heads cut off. And Jesus said they all would have died had not God cut those days short. And so here are these people, the most hated, the most sought-after believers in all of human history, constantly being chased down. And God says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Now, we don't usually think of death as a blessing, but it will be especially, I mean, we think maybe the terrorist thinks death is a blessing. You know, he takes out innocent people and he thinks he's got this big reward waiting for him according to the Quran. Or maybe the politician who advocates abortion, they argue death is a blessing because now your problem's gone. Or those who argue for euthanasia, now the person who's suffering, he's out of misery. But for most people, death is not a blessing. It's just the opposite. Yet for the believer, death is a blessing because to be absent from the body is just a change of address. You're home with the Lord. And there's no more persecution, especially for these who are in the summation of all of the Holocaust in human history brought together. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And the one who is thirsty, come. Now, the wonderful, wonderful word is come to this one, this promised one, who is the root and the descendant of David. What an invitation God is giving. He's inviting you to the Savior. He's inviting you to eternal life. And remember, at this time in human history, people are going to be pouring over the book of Revelation. They're going to be reading this book like they've never read it before because many are going to find Jesus as Lord through it. And then once they find it, they're going to say, well, the whole plan is here. What's next? Ooh, wow, that seal. Ooh, that trumpet. Ooh, that bowl. Wow. They're going to be reading it. They're going to be pouring through it. And so God cares. God has compassion. He's seeking after sinful fallen people. Who is the Spirit? How does He work? And we are witnesses of these things, the apostles could say, and so is the Holy Spirit. Those apostles were saying, when I preach, I'm a witness, but so is the Holy Spirit a witness. So the Spirit says, come, and the bride says, come. Who's the bride? It's the body of Christ. Hey, look, when I preach, I'd rather be dead than to come up into this pulpit and not to preach with God's Spirit behind me because it's meaningless. It's useless not to, pre to preach in your own power, and it's useless for you as a believer who is called as the bride of Christ to go and tell, to try to do it in your own effort and in your own strength. One of the purposes a church exists is to evangelize. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I don't care how spiritual you may think you are, how many Bible studies you lead, how many organizations you are over. If you are not fishing for men, you're not following Christ. 
For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so John says here, the Spirit and the bride say, come. There are two words that really summarize God's call. The first word is come, the second word is go. First, he invites you to himself, and then he sends you out to tell. Go and tell. And a church exists by evangelism like a fire exists by burning. And if a church is not evangelizing, and by the church, I'm talking about us individually brought together corporately, then we're not worth the real estate we sit on. And most churches, sad to say, are not evangelizing. And let the one who hears say come. So one man hears the invitation, he's converted, and what is he supposed to do as a new believer? Invite others to come. You see, it's just beautiful here. Let the one who hears say come. The Spirit says come. The saints who make up the body of Christ by the Spirit say come. And those who are forgiven and find new life, they in turn are to say come. That's God's last call in the Bible. And those who refuse his last call will only hear one word, depart. The Spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. It's a wonderful invitation, which brings me to my third and final point. Beyond the promise of salvation and the plea of salvation, there's the price of salvation. The price of salvation, verse 17 specifically says, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life, how? Without cost. This is a wonderful promise. If you are thirsty, you may come and you may receive what's called here the water of life without cost. When my children were young and money was tight, we'd go into a restaurant when the ma- when the ma- <laughs> when the waitress would come up to the table and ask us what would you like, to- I'd say eight eight waters all the way around. <laughs> and when we would go into a McDonald's, I'd say oh, we'd like eight waters, please, complimentary cups. Otherwise, they charge you a dime each. It was free. Well, even so, the scriptures make clear that the gift of eternal life is free. The water of life without cost. The New English Bible says, free of charge. The English Standard Version says, without price. The CSB says, as a gift. The Scripture is clear that eternal life is free. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. You've been saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. And the price that has been paid, though, is not free. It cost God his own son's precious blood. And how foolish are people who drink from the world's wells and ignore the freedom, for you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and the new life that Jesus gives. And how foolish we can be as Christians if we get distracted and we let our heart drift into the world. If any man is thirsty, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. How can God make your salvation so free? Because of the great exchange. He took him who knew no sin, 
to be sin on our behalf. Jesus, who is sinless, the Father made him sin on our behalf. The sin of the world was laid on him. In his own body on the cross, he bore our sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Those are the robes we're speaking of today. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Listen, your sin, like my sin, is offensive to a holy God, and he is going to punish it. And unless you come through Jesus, the promise of salvation, the root and the descendant of David, then in the end you will be outside. And the man who is in hell in Luke 16, he's forever thirsty. And he probably, no doubt, like many in Jesus' day, had heard the invitation to come and drink, but he didn't. God loves you. He loves you like crazy. And if you die and you go to hell, you're going to have to step past the bloodied, bruised body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did he die for everyone, the Scripture says, but the Scripture also affirms he died for each one of us. He died for each one. He died for you. And unless you repent, change your mind about your sin, about how you're going to be saved, unless you take your sin that's offensive to God and call it wrong and trust Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel, to save you and to change you, you'll be outside. And it will happen so quick that the one who's in his filth will forever and ever continue in his filthiness. So I would plead with you today, come to the promise. Come to Jesus because he wants to save you. Now, our Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for an invitation that you would give at the close of Scripture because you are a God who delights in the forgiveness of people and the salvation of souls. I pray today, Father, you'd help someone who has never received that gift Remind them of the price that has been paid in full. Help them in faith, knowing that you cannot lie. You promise whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help them in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. But Father, as the bride of Christ, you've invited us to come, but then you've invited us and commanded us to go to go and tell, to become fishers of men. We have a brand new week before us. Help us to be faithful with the gospel you've entrusted. We pray even for Friday night as we pre-evangelistically reach out to people in our community. Give us someone that we could care about who might in turn end up visiting and hearing the plan of salvation and becoming saved. Only you can do that, but use us, we pray for the glory of Jesus and in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation this morning. And if you're here and you have trusted Christ, God would ask you to make it public. Everyone that Jesus called, he called publicly because he knew if it was real on the inside, you'd be willing to confess it before men on the outside. So he said, if you won't confess me before men, I'll never confess you before my father. If you're here and you've not been baptized as an emblem as we've witnessed this morning, then I invite you to take that step of obedience. Maybe you're a believer, you've been baptized, but you need a church home. Well, we need you. And if you want to serve with us and make a difference for all of eternity, 
I invite you to come. Matt, lead us. We're going to sing all three verses as an act of worship to our God. But if you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.